Welcome to the Kill the Line podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. We got a great show for you today. One of my oldest friends in filmmaking, Greg DeLiso. He's the director of Hectic Knife. Uh, he's making Psycho Ape 2 with Addison. If you just listened to the last episode, he made Psycho Ape with Addison. They're making Psycho 2 together. They, they raised over $10,000 to make that movie, Psycho Ape 2, and I think it's going to be great. I love Psycho Ape. I love Hectic Knife. I love Greg. So let's talk to Greg DeLiso. By the way, if you like the show, killthelionfilms.com. $2 per month. That's all we're asking. It keeps the show afloat. It keeps the studio afloat. We want to keep making movies and great podcasts for you. And now, Greg DeLiso. All right, Greg, good to have you on the show. Yeah, man. Good to be here. Uh, first time, long time. Um, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So Greg is one of my oldest friends in filmmaking. He was he was right there uh, with me making my first film, Shredder. He was on set for that. And uh, we were both Brooklyn filmmakers back then. He's, he's of course, from, from Michigan. But uh, at that time, we were both Brooklyn filmmakers. What, what can you remember about that time period, that kind of like first decade of 2000s into, I guess, second decade of 2000s? Probably, I think we met probably around 2008 or 2009. Um, what can you remember about that time making movies in Brooklyn? I always forget that I'm in Shredder too, and then someone reminds me, or it comes up somehow, and then uh, I always remember that I pretended to not know how to play like Green Sleeves or something. I think it's Green Sleeves, something like that, on the guitar during that show. Um, yeah, man, it was fun. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, God, Brooklyn in the late two thousands. <sighs> I remember the fact that Pete and I were friends at the time or not now but we were making all these shorts and i had no idea because i hadn't seen it but i had no idea that we were making uh films and later shot a, a ton of stuff for hectic knife in exactly the same locations that they were shooting saturday night fever and if you watch saturday night fever which i finally did about two years ago Jason's Jason's is actually visible in it. Um, there's this store. I don't know if it's still there, but there's a store in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn called Jason's. But it, it, the way the sign was, it looked like it was called Jason's Jason's. And we thought that was funny. And uh, yeah, there's a bunch of locations under. There's like that br the bridge by like 100th Street in Bay Ridge. Like we used to hang out there all the time and just shoot uh, scenes with Craigslist actors and stuff. And it was really fun. And um, then I was watching Saturday Night Fever and they were in the same spot. So I remember uh, walking around Brooklyn in that area and just um, shooting a bunch of funny stuff and going over to your house and shooting, helping you film stuff. And yeah, it was an interesting time. I don't remember a lot of the films, honestly, from that period. That's sort of when I started to like check out of uh, like what was going on with like real movies just in some ways. But I don't know. I started, I try to stay in touch, I guess. I don't know. Well, I feel like that was kind of the when Mumblecore was like kind of taking over the public consciousness as far as like when an independent movie was. And we we kind of fell like outside of that and we were trying to figure out what we were doing because um, we were more, I think, influenced by stuff like Stella and David Wayne and also like when I made my first movie, I was thinking like, oh, you make your first movie, it's got to be in black and white. And, uh, I was thinking more in terms of like making like a 16 millimeter film, like, um, like a Jim Jarmusch movie or like clerks or something like that. So we had these different frame 
frames of reference where like, you know, I'll talk to younger filmmakers now who are just starting out and they just don't have the same kind of thoughts going through their head whatsoever. They just think in terms of YouTube and they think in terms of, you know, yeah, I have the latest DSLR camera or yeah, I have whatever. And it's just not a um, consideration as much. But I was very hyper-conscious of like what was out there, what I didn't want to be at the time, what I wanted to do, finding myself, dealing with the fact that like there was things I wanted to do humor-wise and there was things I wanted to do drama-wise. So Woody Allen was like really huge for me at that time period because he was the the one person I could kind of point to out there who had kind of conquered uh, comedy and tragedy at the same time. So... um that that was what was going through my head. I I have fond memories of Bay Ridge. I was there uh, just uh, probably about a week ago. I remember I walked by your old apartment and I snapped a picture for you. And um, you know it's it's always going to be Bay Ridge. Like it was pretty much the exact same vibe there. Not too much has changed. I enjoyed being around there. It, it was a good time. And like you said, Saturday Night Fever. I, I love that movie. I don't know how you feel about it, but I think it's I think it's pretty underrated as far as like a movie goes. Like it's no, I definitely like it. Yeah, I definitely like it. I just I didn't know that it took it sort of was shot and took place in, in that in our in my old neighborhood. I mean I say my old neighborhood, it was, you know, I lived there from like two thousand five to like two thousand eleven or something. But uh but no, I mean yeah, it's it's all shot right there and it's really incredible to see that. I and then yeah, thank you for sending that picture. I mean you know, hearing you talk about the the black and white first film, I mean, I think about that a lot. I talk about that concept with people. It's certainly a bygone thing. I mean, to my understanding, and I could be somewhat wrong about this, but to my understanding, there was this notion when you were shooting on film and when shooting on film was kind of like the thing that existed because it were if you're you know, we're before the consumer video era. So we're talking basically around the year two thousand and before that. So the last century, the black and white first film was based on this idea that black and white film was just cheaper to buy. And so a movie like Clerks uh, could have been in color, but let's pretend that would have cost an extra, you know, a few thousand dollars in film costs. So they just decide to do black and white. I could be wrong. Sometimes people like to tell stories like that to kind of make them sound more cool than they are. But it seems to, regardless of the real reason, it, not even, I was going to say it seems to. It definitely was something that essentially almost became a trope. It happened so often. It seemed like every one of my favorite filmmakers had these earliest films or first films that were black and white. Everybody from Kubrick to Spike Lee to Scorsese to, you know, Gus Van Zandt to just all, you know, all those big, you know, kind of 80s, 90s, 2000s indie guys. That was such a thing. And I, I sometimes for myself, I don't know if you feel this way ever, but I always kind of laugh to myself about being a young person and emulating that idea. Cause it was so important to me that Hector Knight was like in black and white and stuff. And you know, it's, uh, I mean, if it really is true that it was done out of necessity because of what they could afford, um, then there's a certain funny, like pretentiousness to that idea of like copying that on video when I, cause I mean, you know, I shot like back in the day in color, I just made it black and white, you know, it's just sort of like, it's a cheat code to feeling like you have this, uh, in with all the camaraderie with all these people shooting on film in a way, but I never cared about any sort of like all this, you know, the noise between like shooting on film and video and stuff. And, um, I mean, I, 
I wanted like that to have like a certain specific black and white look. I really emulated the look of uh, Pi with the high contrast, like Tri-X reversal, 16 millimeter stock uh, stuff that he was doing with that. But um, yeah, when you talk about Mumblecore too, I mean, Mumblecore is something that comes up with me a lot in conversation as well, because very interestingly, I sort of reflect on the idea that you and I were young people in our early 20s living in Brooklyn, you know, only a few neighborhoods, you even closer, but even a few, only a few neighborhoods away from really what I would say is kind of the last um, big like film, like underground or independent like film movement that sort of brought a few people very famously like into the, you know, into the popular mainstream. Obviously Barbie is coming out, you know, like soon or whatever. I honestly, you know, it sounds like you may have some differing, and it'd be interesting to kind of talk about this a little bit, but some differing thought, but I think obviously Hectic Knife, you know, it's not, there's not really much mumble chord about it as far as the aesthetic, but I always regretted as I got older, I regret not making myself somehow more connected to that scene because it sounds kind of crazy, but somehow or other, I kind of knew it was happening kind of all around me. But I, me, this is only for me personally. Again, I feel like you might disagree or we might differ on this, but I felt personally like too in my own little cave and sort of like insecure to just like go find these people and become a part of this little scene. And, and I regret doing that because I, I had no idea at the time that it was going to foster like people in such a big way. But, uh, you know, it's, it felt like my opportunity as a young person to be part of like a movement that was happening in film that, that happened to be localized right in my backyard. And uh, I just didn't take any advantage of it. And I sort of look back on that time now and I wonder, I don't really know exactly what the current movement is or what's next or what's kind of going on. And I feel kind of disconnected from that stuff in, in some ways. And um you know, so Mumblecore, I mean, it's a lot more expansive than just like the puppy chair and a couple other things. I mean, there's just like so many different little, you know, branches on that tree. And I also think something interesting about Mumblecore is that um, I don't think it's nearly as known as like to us it is. I mean, we grew up around it, but there's like people who are really into film and really into all the sort of different offshoots of um, you know, underground filmmaking and indie filming throughout the last, you know, 125 years are certainly aware of it and into it, but I don't think it had nearly the, um, you know, the, the cultural power or anything uh, of, of anything like we saw, you know, in the seventies or the nineties or anything. I don't think it came remotely close. Um, but uh, so I don't know. I, I don't even know. I just, yeah, I could talk Mumblecore a lot. I have, and it's an almost endless well, which is, I just find interesting, but yeah. All right. So with black and white film um, and black and white video, for me, I, I like the look of grain better on video when it was in black and white, because it just reminded me of film grain more. Whereas um, video grain, when it's in color, it can kind of like tip itself like, oh, it's, it's video, like, obviously, just because it, it just doesn't have the same look as, like, film grain. So that was part of what attracted me to doing black and white video stuff. Also, the, the lighting was so much easier because you could use mixed lighting sources and it wasn't a problem. So I could use daylight plus incandescent plus whatever combination, and it all just, like, equates pretty similar. Like, obviously, there are 
minor minute differences in color temperature and how it responds with black and white but overall you can just use whatever lighting you wanted and i knew i wanted to use basically natural lighting so it's kind of natural lighting's best friend black and white in a lot of ways especially for video because you know obviously if you're shooting with film you're not necessarily seeing what you're capturing as you're capturing it whereas with video i can do very minute um underexposed stuff that still works and still looks great because I can kind of watch and and make sure that like anything I need to be uh, properly exposed in the shot is being exposed, etc. And then to go into Mumblecore, we're basically like dual topicking. Uh, <laughs> I know. Can I have, can I expand on what you just said before you go into Mumblecore? Because I have a thing. Yeah, please do. Please do. Well, so so with Hectic Knife, uh, what I I shot that on the Panasonic DVX uh, 100B, which was like I think the second or third in the line of the DVXs, and by that point they had really perfected a few things, and I really think that's like the key version of that camera too. But what I did, I had this sort of technique when I shot that, I turned the gain up all the way, all the for the whole shoot, no matter what we were doing. So not even so we would be in indoors and really well lit. And I still had the gain all the way up, and then I would just expose, you know, I'd set the exposure accordingly so nothing was, like, overexposed. But I just mean the the purpose of doing it that way was that that way the grain would be totally natural to the camera and, and pushed and enhanced as, like, far as the camera can naturally do it. Because with the gain all the way up, uh, if people don't know what gain means, basically, like, the, the the like easy way to explain it is like if you were shooting like a friend's wedding in low light and you couldn't see like almost anything there's a like little knob on the camera literally and you can there has three different settings and if you turn it all the way up it it's called gain it'll bring in as much light as like possible to the image so if you've ever seen like very grainy you know video of like a wedding from 25 years ago 20 years ago it that's the gain being like all the way up it's like trying to fight to bring as much light in into the sensor as it possibly can. So the grain in uh Hectonife and in Psychoate both, because I did this on both things, it's all like totally naturally like built into the shot. There's no like grain filters and all that stuff like put in later. It's all real. And and I agree with you a thousand percent uh with what you said because when I dipped uh Hectonife to black and white and started making those adjustments, the grain looks like gorgeous uh, uh in the natural dvx like black and white like turn black and white and i it's funny to me but i've had a lot of people and like independently of one another ask me like if i shot uh hectic on 16 or, or they assume that i did and it's all thanks to the dvx and the way that that grain uh gives it such like a texture it really is like almost filmic but it has its own kind of specific style but what I will say is that Bad Brain, the movie that I shot last summer, I shot that on what is the new Panasonic. It's still the DVX, but it has a different name. I don't even I have the HVX or something like that. I think it's the 200 DVX 200. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's right. Um, DVX 200. And uh, it's basically, you know, it's the DVX in 4K. Well, I'm bad brain is most likely, I mean, I was thinking it's going to be, it's intended to be in color. And I did the same thing though. I turned the gain up all the way thinking like this is going to work. It'll give me the same kind of thing. 
And it's really not. It was probably a mistake to do it that way. However, I'm trying as hard as I can. What I'm sort of trying to do now in post with like the color timing and everything is like a naturalistic palette, but that does have some of that sort of like old school looking 16 millimeter kind of grain to it, but it's not quite the same. The 4k is just such a big image and it's so like you see every like pore in the skin which is something I was I like kind of love about the DVX is that you get this like crystal clear nice image, but it was so small that it kind of like washed over some of that stuff. Um, and so I'm actually struggling. Like I'm I kind of did the same thing I'm used to doing that that worked on the on the the what's it called the uh, mini DV tape a version of the you know the SD version of the DVX and it, it's not quite translating in the 4K and it's kind of bothering me. But you know oh well. Yeah, that's what happened with television a little bit as well. Is like uh, you got these shows that some of them were shot on thirty-five millimeter, and you know they were only ever meant to be seen in a standard deaf way. So you do different things as far as makeup than you would normally do, and then suddenly, you know, with the advent of DVD and Blu-ray, you're seeing these shows and you're seeing the makeup and you're seeing uh, the special effects and in too much uh, resolution, basically, and it's it's basically just the wrong effect because you're seeing every pore, like you said, you're seeing every wrinkle and you're seeing all these things that you would normally, you would normally have to see. So yeah, it is, it is a funny thing with, um, standard def and 1080p and 4k as far as filmmaking. I never shoot 4k when I, when I shoot movies because I kind of like, I like how 1080 is kind of my makeup person in a way. And uh, if I if I was transitioning from standard def to 1080, I'd feel like more safe with standard def. And basically, like whatever's the bigger, better so-called version of like what I'm trying to do, I feel like I would always want to do something just one step down, one step removed. I, like I would want to use 4K instead of 8K if that were an option. You, you know, hiding the strings is such an important aspect, whether you're doing stuff with actual strings or metaphoric strings. And I just feel like there, there is yet, yeah, like you said, a, a kind of like quality where you can kind of cover up things and, and, and things just blend together a little bit better. That's why standard def and high def is just so relative. And, and I think when consumers talk about it, they don't really know what they're talking about. Basically they just want a clear picture that just doesn't look compressed. And we're over here trying to have to, worry about like the actual ramifications of of shooting in particular ways for sure well it's about intention too right like i mean like you know psycho 8 being shot on mini dv tape in 2019 is totally like intentional in the sense that like we're making the clear statement like we don't care about like resolution lines and stuff like this is supposed to be sort of grimy and old school and like cheap look like that's and it's like for the cause like that's what it's supposed to be so if you if you could now you could do the opposite you could you could you could make cycle even 70 millimeter or in like you know uh 16k or whatever that they have and the joke could be the opposite like look at how giant and expensive this dumb little small thing is but you know, for our purposes, that you, you sort of lean into the 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 world that you're creating, and 
it's like what you have access to kind of helps like shape uh, that. So it's like uh, in that way, it's like, you know, Cyclope kind of couldn't be any other way. It looks like it's supposed to be that size and shape and that low quality and all that stuff. And uh, I think as long as you're sort of playing to that rather than like worrying about, you know, renting a camera that has the highest resolution and blah, blah, blah. Cause when you're caught up in all that stuff, you know, it, you lose what it's all about. You lose kind of the, the, the rest of it, you know? And, uh, I think a lot of times like, you know, people starting out making a short and stuff, it's, 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 I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't strive for the look that you want or strive for like the highest possible, you know, resolution or technical polish, or if that's what you want. But I just think that sometimes that's like the only thing that people care about. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm often like very um, interested in the idea if you were to do, you know, the Coke or Pepsi challenge with this kind of stuff with like the regular consumer out in the world, like, yes, obviously there's a gigantic chasm of objective uh, visual difference between like psycho ape and avatar two. But like, is there that much of a difference between like Psycho Ape and like Blair Witch or something, which is a movie that it was like accepted by the mainstream, you know, 25 years ago. So the point being that it's like what the masses or whoever it is with the audience or whoever out there, the hypothetical audience, like what they will accept, you know, uh, versus what, you know, they, what we think that they care about when we chase, you know, the highest resolution. I, I just think like, I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. I'd be curious. And I even have a little, I was talking about this with a friend. This is slightly, it's like some same topic, but just a tiny tangent. But it made me think of this is, um, I like, there's this whole tr- like common thing in filmmaking and film school and all this kind of stuff that always says like, um, sound is the most important thing like make sure you have crystal clear sound and blah blah and nine 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 repeating times out of whatever the number that's always true like yes of course like and the reason that people are saying that is because like if you if the audience is like struggling to hear what the dialogue is like they will check out right away but if a shot has like too much headroom or something they, you know, they might not notice it or they might notice it, but if they can, at least if they can hear it, then it's, then that's okay. And I sort of like push back on that in the sense that I would say that like, if you took like an objectively like bad looking amateur like film and like short film by some hypothetical no name person that like never made anything and they just tried to make the short and it was like terrible and boring and didn't matter if you took that thing and like did a bunch of ADR and sound design to it and like made it all amazing sounding, like no one would say it was good. But if you took like 2001 space odyssey or just like, you know, some, whatever, uh, any uh, big movie, like uh, any real movie and you like put like static and like grating noise, like under the whole thing, like which one would still be like better? Like I, you know, I think it's almost obvious. Like it, you know, it's like, I think like this focus on polish in certain areas are just like things that technical things that people get caught up in. I don't, you know, I, maybe I'm, I might be biased because all my stuff, like people might say it looks and sounds like shit or something. You know what I mean? Like maybe I'm just fighting for my own cause, I guess, but I, I don't know. I think there's a little bit of like artistic, like merit or truth to what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, I think um, audiences are way savvier and way hipper than they ever get a chance to be. I think, uh, you know, things are usually so controlled 
and so calculated that they're delivered when really like they just want stuff that that's cool and interesting it's kind of a thing where we as artists we're we're kind of biased and we're trained to think of audiences as squarer than us but every weird decision i've ever made as far as like something that like i would think that audiences wouldn't be into but i like as far as what i want to do with one of my movies whether it's no shark having no uh sound effects or music or anything and just being straight monologue over footage i put that out into the world and people are down to like watch that and it has its audience and nobody's like oh man i can't watch that because it doesn't have any like you know weird fucking sounds of waves or some shit everyone who is interested in it just goes along for the ride so i think it's like a i think we should think of ourselves more as like chefs and like you know how like chefs are like thought of as like these assholes but like are so beloved as far as with society and stuff and like will make these like grand artistic statements with their food and be and be very like tough on their people that are working for them but also like i don't care if like the public accepts us but like you know i'm just going to put out the food that i believe in blah 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 like i'm not saying we should be dicks to people that work for us but i'm saying that like the boldness of a chef is so accepted by even the most square people that you could ever meet in your entire life like people that just have no sense of of what even art is um and if you think of film as like food like something that nourishes you as well as entertains you and as well as like titillates you it's one and the same and we should understand that like if we if we see our audience as people that will go down that rabbit hole with us then we can do pretty much anything we want it's only it's only when we think of ourselves as above our audience and uh, our audience is particularly below us that our our choices are going to be kind of like half-assed in a way because they're going to come from a place of like cynicism i feel like. like you can do anything as long as you as long as you believe that like some people will go along on the journey with you versus thinking to yourself like oh i'm alone on this like like if you, if you just include the audience as far as like, Hey, you're as cool as I am. Um, I think they'll go on the journey. Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> I totally agree. I mean, I think, um, I, I'm a big sports analogy person. So I think, I, I mean, the chef thing works perfectly, but I mean, I, I think like, um, you know, when you're like a little kid and you try to throw a ball, like you don't really know how, but you might imitate like what you've seen someone like throw a ball and some kids are kind of whatever reason naturally maybe better at doing the imitation than others. And then you're just naturally doing it as part of your life, but you're not really good at it until it's like a combination of things. You're not really good at it until you like actually interface it with like other people that are throwing a ball and we can actually see what's going on. But you also have to like believe within yourself. And that's like the part that I think people maybe don't talk about as much, but like when you, my, the, the, the analogy I'll make with like making films or doing any kind of art is like, you know, I started making stuff like just making different films and little things and editing things and making music videos and shorts and full movies when I was like 14 
And it, it felt like the first time you ever throw a ball, like you don't know how to do it. Like you're just learning how to like move footage around in a timeline as a young 14 year old and how to like put a camera on a tripod and point it at something and look and see what you want it to be and stuff. And it's like, it kind of starts off almost as like nothing, like throwing a ball that doesn't even, it barely like leaves your hand. It's like, it's not, it's just like footage of your backyard. It's not anything. And then you start like putting it together and there's these little tiny like victories and then it keeps like progressing if you keep nurturing it and stuff to the point where like you make a thing, but it's still like, you know, it's like not good, but you like keep doing it because you feel like this is going to be good, like at some point. And then there's this point in your life of making stuff where, and for me, I I will say it, it took it. I mean, I'm trying to think I took at least 10 years, but I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like good, making stuff or, you know, good throwing a ball, um, until like my mid twenties, like, so 10 years later, and I probably didn't feel, you know, I I feel much more confident like now doing it, but the point I'm sort of getting to, to, to relate to like what you're saying about the chef, just like serving the food is sort of that it's like, um, you know, there, I know for me, there's these, there's a, like a, a internal conflict, like all the time. And the conflict is, uh, between, there's a hypothetical audience in my mind that I am like so desperate to please that it like cripples me emotionally sometimes. Like it is so I'm, I feel like I'm doing everything for them. Like it, it, I'm, I'm so, I'm gonna, you know, they talk about killing babies in your work, like, you know, cutting stuff you love and all that. Like I'm so ready to just totally like destroy my own piece of work for the sake of that audience because I'm so obsessed with them in making sense to them and resonating and all that stuff. But at the same time, there's an ironic thing where it's sort of like there's this ego part of it where it's like, but they're going to get what I like, like a good example for me is in bad brain. I did these like people on the street interviews, which you and you were part of, of course. And, um, people will ask me like, how is that going to go in the film? Like, what's the, where is that? What is that for? Or whatever. And I'm the truthful answer is like they're going to go throughout the film. But like I don't exactly know. Like when I say I don't know, I mean like this makes sense to me. That's why I'm doing it. It makes more sense to me to do it than to not do it. And I trust my ego is telling me that if I just do that the way I know how, it's going to make sense to the end user at the end, but it's all like a fake magic trick. Like I don't really know what I'm doing. It's all a slate of hand until I do put it together. And then it's like, Oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. Like you can just make a film. That's a narrative that just cuts to like strangers in times square, like answering quite like it, you can do that. And it's like, it's an ego decision of like, no, this is, I, this is the food that you're I'm making. Like no matter if, whether you like it or not, but it's like I have to trust that it's like gonna taste good and stuff. And I do I like to it took ten or twenty years to like trust myself. But I do now and I'm at a point now where I'm I'm like, okay, like I'm I know how to make this meal. Like let just let me make it. Leave me alone and let me make it. And it's really hard to do, but like you're gonna like like you're gonna like it, basically. I, it sounds egotistical to say and stuff, but it's like 
you wouldn't, I wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do it if like you didn't feel that way, I guess. And so I, I think that's what you're saying to some extent. And I, I like, I get that a lot. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's the way to approach it is to kind of like trust yourself as almost like a conduit for something greater than yourself. Like almost in like the, the classic, almost biblical sense of like, yes, I have the voice of God talking <laughs> to me. I'm not going to like second guess it. Like totally. I just, I hear it and just listen to me because trust me, I'm, I'm right about this. Well, the, the best thing I ever heard about this idea was uh, Dave Chappelle in his episode of Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. And he's talking about what it feels like to like make art and work on stuff and versus like having an idea. And he's basically saying like, sometimes an idea pulls up in front of my house in a car and it's like, come on, get in the car, honk in the horn. Like, come on, dude, you're coming with me. Like get in the car. We're going to go. And then he gets in the car and the idea is just driving the car. And he's like, all right, like it would go this way. But then all of a sudden, like kind of, he figures it out. And then it's, he, that's the, the creation comes from that. And it's usually like the best thing ever. But when there's times in his life where he's like, I should drive somewhere. Like I'm going to, if I, I'm going to do it, I'll drive the car. And then he tries to get in and he's trying to drive, but there's no idea in the car. And that's the ego part being like, I'm the guy. It's a, it's always like both things. It's like, if you think that you're, always the God that has all the ideas, then you might be driving this like empty car around. But if when the idea is driving you, then what I think you Cody just said is true. Uh, You're the con the idea is like the God thing and you're, you become Jesus or whatever. Like, you you know what I mean? Like it's, it is that conduit that you said, like there's this spiritual thing that's like the driving the car. And if you're lucky enough to be in the car with it, then you have this little bit of, godly you know fairy dust i mean i should say i'm an atheist so i don't really i'm speaking in you know figurative language i guess but i i feel that it, there is real feelings of this like ideas can just like carry you somewhere that you didn't it doesn't feel almost like you had the idea it just feels like it somehow wow that came into my head that is awesome like that makes me laugh and i'm that makes me excited and i need to i gotta, gotta go write that down right now and like that, you know, that's a great feeling. But then we've all had those times too, where we, we kind of got nothing, but we're like, I could, you know, I should write so I could do something, you know, and it's like, sometimes that's a great attitude. You force yourself into putting yourself in that headspace. And sometimes you come out of it just lo- looking like a jackass that doesn't have an idea. It's like kind of, it's all that stuff. Like you have to, when you're talking to God, you have to be like humble enough to talk to him like, and, and, and respect the authority, but you also kind of have to be confident enough to get his respect. So he'll toss you an idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think showing up is, is, uh, something that Steven Pressfield talks about a lot. He, he wrote the book, the war of art, which kind of goes into his ideas about the muse and the muse respecting you. If you show up, if you, if you sit down to write every day, the muse is going to take notice and the muse is going to come through your fingers and in some capacity but it's that diligence that that tells the universe like that you're ready for those ideas you know dave Chappelle, you know he went up on stage so many times very very young and that's that's kind of a uh, sends a beacon to the universe as far as the muse of like give me some ideas I'll, i'll be your vessel i'll 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 be a way for you to get those ideas out to the world and get that humor out 
you know, that that's the humbleness I think is, is, you know, you're, you're making yourself available to have ideas. Um, and I can always tell the ideas that are coming through somebody versus the ideas that are coming from somebody. Cause I'll, I'll have people I know who will be like, I have this great idea for a movie and they'll tell me it. And it's just like, I can tell it's like, it's almost like an imitation of an idea. It's like, they're doing what they're they're saying what they think like an idea actually is when like when i hear somebody tell me like an idea that they truly had like that truly came to them and has nothing to do with their brain is just something that just channeled through them it just takes on a different flavor and it takes on this different aspect to the point where it's almost there's an embarrassing quality to it because it it shouldn't fully make sense like if somebody tells me like an idea that totally makes sense I get a little wary of it because that's kind of not what ideas are like when then when they come through you. They have to have some aspect to them that's like wrong or stupid for them to be believable to me. And like I think it's that way in like it it's like if you've j- suddenly found out you were pregnant. I feel like that's kind of more like what an idea truly is is like if if somebody if like a friend sits you down and is like, "Hey, I just found out I'm pregnant." That's really what an idea is like. Not literally, but like it's Hey, there's this thing growing inside of me. Um, I don't know if, what I'm going to do about it. If I'm going to pursue it or if I'm going to get rid of it and just move on. That's really what a what what an idea is like. And when the muse kind of like shows up in your life with like, here's here's the movie we're going to make. Uh, you say you make movies, so here's a movie, and uh, hope you're ready for it. Well, I think the reason that the pregnant thing is such a great analogy is because. There's so few good humans that like exist in the world of 8 billion of us, you know, but the great humans, it's almost like the number of great humans is like equating a ratio to like the number of like great films versus like all the ideas anyone ever had for one ever. Like it's like, you know, and and like to to if you suddenly find out you're pregnant. Like, yeah, a a lot of people like end up raising a kid and then it's like some jerk person like but there's like so few people that are able to like nurture it into like this awesome person. And it's like those are the you know, like that's the movie Rocky or something. You know, it's just like that's like those these cool movies that exist. It's like when someone had the like means and the foresight and the the ingenuity and the creativity and the guts and the fear and they had all the right things to like nurture the ideas that were coming through um which yeah I, I think that's like a great a great way to put it yeah it's like a cross between uh nature and nurture like the best of nature and the best of nurture coming together and then you have rocky or then you have star wars or jaws or whatever yeah i think it's interesting too that you at one point you said something to the effect of like i can kind of tell like and suss out i can spot the sort of like not good ideas or whatever. And I don't remember exactly how you put it, but, but it made me think of sort of, and this is obviously my own personal feeling, but I think I, I suspect that there are people out there that might be able to understand or relate to what I'm saying is that to me, part of the difference between like a Tarantino and a JJ Abrams, who I would say a lot of, a lot of people would say that are both these sort of like copy and paste, like, homage like paint by numbers kind of filmmakers where 
like you like with Tarantino, it's like a very specific thing that we all now know where it's literally like pretty much every single scene or even down to a shot or even down to like a tiny detail is like something that's like lifted from another film and then like kind of rap sampled like into his film. And that's like how it works. But what comes out at the other end always feels so um, original that we almost like forget that the, that that these influences even happen to the extent that like especially if you first understood him when you were a kid you didn't have a, like a, like I did and you didn't have like a lot of reference for all this stuff but it's like it felt so original that it was like mind blowing like original it felt so original like how could this person have all these ideas and you kind of realize like oh he in a way didn't he's really great at collage but I don't I first of all don't say that to like say anything negative about him remotely it's it's just a description that would be fair if posited about how the work is in a way with jj abrams it's not any different it's just that for whatever reason there's something hollow about the new creation where it looks as beautiful and like amazing as it's like the thing that it's copying but it somehow doesn't resonate at and it doesn't have an originality to it when it's all put together. That to me always felt like some kind of the difference. I think in part of, in what you're talking about is that it's sort of like some people have a knack for when they're the conduit to these kind of ideas to like swirl them into something that no matter how copied and no matter how much we can like see the, the parts inside, it feels like their idea and their voice. And some people it's like almost the opposite. They swirl it together and all you see is just like all the parts. And it's like, not, it doesn't even feel like a new thing at all. And it almost feels like, you know, corny for that reason. Yeah. It's like, um, basically it's the difference between rescuing all these things that would have been forgotten, uh, in cinema. Cause like a lot of, uh, Tarantino stuff he'll lift from movies that are like barely good but he'll pinpoint like the one or two things that are like really good in them and he'll reference that or whatever um I think if if you're you're humble in the sense that like your mission is to to rescue these these techniques and these these uh motifs um from film and kind of show that like no we can use these kind of things to make something great versus J.J. Abrams, who I think he he wants to hearken back to something that is probably a little overdone and a little bit covered territory, because J.J. Abrams is more of like, a, I want to be like Spielberg randomly, or I want to be like whatever. And I, li- I like some stuff that J.J. Abrams has done. I think the show Lost is great, and I think his contributions to it were were great. But you know, as a filmmaker, I, I just don't really see what the value is in in what he's doing because it, it feels like he's he's trying to do something, whereas Tarantino, I think his grammar and how he speaks uh is in clip form, almost like a if you were a hip hop artist, you would think in terms of samples. And you'd think in terms of like, I got to grab this bit from this song here and this bit from this other song, et cetera. And if I put it all together, it's going to be like the the best new song of the summer or whatever. That's Tarantino to me. Uh, a friend of mine, I've, I, I'm blanking on who it was, uh, said to me that uh, my friend Lunch 
who's a who's a uh, record producer and a, he he does beats and everything. He said that he considers Tarantino to be the first hip hop filmmaker. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think it's you can sample so much that it becomes a new art form, and I think that's what Tarantino cracked that some other people haven't been able to crack. I think he embraced it openly too and talks about it. I mean, I've heard I've heard him talk about that, and I I think what's interesting for Tarantino is that. Right after Reservoir Dogs was a hit, so at, at his first film, you already had people who were savvy enough who were like, wait, like, but all this stuff is like from other movies. And then they would start to show like, here's a side by side, like, here's what happened in Reservoir Dogs. Here's what happened in this other movie that he's like lifting, you know, some whether it's some Japanese movie or some other, you know, whatever it is. And um, so I think it it I don't think Tarantino's wrong in saying it at all, and I probably agree with him, but I think that it almost started as a defense. That was sort of like, look, I'm doing this in the way that hip-hop does, uh, and it's sort of a defense line against people that might have been accusing him of, like, lifting stuff or being too much of a collage guy. So I also want to say that, like, you know, while I don't necessarily find much of J.J. Abrams' work, uh, I never saw Lost, but I never, I never, you know, I don't find his work it doesn't really resonate with me on a, on a like very deep level. I think he's super talented and I don't like, I, I'm not, you know, it's like, I'm sort of not uh, like, I'm not trying to be against him or anything. Um, and it's like no disrespect. He did. Uh, do you, is that movie called, what is it called? Gone fishing. Do you remember that movie with like Joe Pesci and like uh, Danny Glover? Yeah, I do remember that. I didn't know he had. He wrote. He wrote that movie. I remember. Really, I remember watching. I remember like why it was one of those movies that like the previews were on like all day long when I was like a ten year old kid, and I never saw it. But it was like such a big part of my life through the previews on TV. And I finally watched it as an adult, and it's like terrible. It doesn't matter at all. But it was one of those things where it was like, wait, written who? Like what? Written by JJ? He actually wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of scripts like before he was known. Yeah, he did. Um, he he wrote Forever Young, which is a really good Mel Gibson movie. Right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, he he's he's written some good stuff. He um, I think he co-wrote Joyride, which I think is one of the best early two thousands horror movies. Definitely, so that's a fantastic movie. I remember I heard Tarantino say that very early in his career, maybe like after Pulp Fiction or something, he was looking for um a project. And uh, he read a really great script that came across his deck, uh, desk for uh, Speed Racer, and it was J.J. Abrams' script. And this predates, you know, the Wachowski sisters and all that. So this predates all that by a lot. Yeah. So I think I think he's a very talented writer. Clearly, um, I think his transition into directing has been a little bit weird for me to watch. Um, and I think he's been, he's been pretty good as a producer as well. He's produced some, some movies that I really like. I like, uh, Cloverfield, the first one a lot. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's as far as like capturing a zeitgeist, man, that movie nailed the blackout in New York city, which a lot of people forget about, which happened, uh, after nine eleven, and kind of was that two thousand three? Because I I lived in Detroit, and I had I, I was I went through the blackout too. So it was the entire like Canada and like upper Midwest and East Coast, like North. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that movie really nailed that. That was uh, I believe two thousand six, but maybe I'm wrong. It sounds right. I mean, it was also nine eleven. I mean, it's after nine eleven. It's after the blackout, and it's also this like. Because I think what happened partially at 9-11 was we also had all this, like, consumer video of it. And it's kind of one of the first, like, 
real things that happened where that was a big deal. And I think Cloverfield did a good job of like using the sort of Blair Witch established, but not, not like the first time that's ever been done, but, you know, using the Blair Witch established like uh, found footage style to like combine it with this like New York City disaster. And it all the blackout and 9-11 and that movie at that time, it all like sort of came together perfectly. It, it was like the perfect movie for that period. Yeah, it totally understood something. Uh, I, I think it 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 spoke to something a little bit unspoken. Um, so I want to, now that we're talking about that time period again, I want to, I want to circle back to the Mumblecore thing that you were addressing because that, that is something I think about a lot. Like there were a lot of people just in my periphery when I was budding as a filmmaker that have gone on to like huge stuff. And as far as like, I'm, I'm talking about comedians, I'm talking about filmmakers, I'm talking about, it was a really exciting time when we were just starting making movies here in Brooklyn. And some of it, I kind of, because I saw that territory was being conquered in a certain area, I wanted to go a completely different direction. So like when I talked to Joe Swanberg on this podcast, I explained to him that like a lot of that Mumblecore stuff, I consciously avoided as much as possible um, when I was making my first movies because I didn't want to be influenced by it. I wanted to do something that was unique. I saw it as like, all right, well, whatever they're doing as far as like the shaky cameras and, and all that, like, and the, and the, basically the style of that, like, I just, I, I wanted to do like with Shredder with my first film, I just wanted to lock the camera down, treat it like it weighed like a hundred pounds and just go in a different direction. And like, obviously later in life, when I, when I watch a lot of those Mumblecore movies for the first time, I can totally see like, the similarities between my stuff and what they're doing, even though I'm approaching it in a slightly different way. I think there was something in the air back then that was just seeping into everything. Um, but basically Joe told me that like, Hey man, if I was in your exact same shoes, I would have been doing the exact same thing. I would have avoided it as much as possible. I would have avoided like the plague essentially and just done my own thing. So I think there was as much as we can kind of regret, like, man, I wish I had, uh, you know, networked a bit more, or I wish I'd known more people or put myself out there. I think some of our best work probably wouldn't have been done if we didn't differentiate ourselves at the time. I, I totally agree with that. You know, it's funny. I, I, that's all really interesting. You know, it's funny. You and I have one thing in common is that, uh, Swanberg has, uh, bought like work from each of us like I, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he bought kill the lion manifesto right and um he bought a copy of uh psycho ape on vhs and and um you know has been a big supporter and stuff and and um no i, I think that's all interesting because i remember i remember early on and this might have been like literally after shredder so we're talking like 2009 or 10 i remember telling you that you know hey there's this mumblecore thing like your stuff really seems to fit into that and feel that way and at the time you were really like not having, you know, you were like, no, 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 no. Like you're very kind of against it. And I, I always kind of remembered that. And it's funny because again, shout out to my friend, John, uh, who's an actor who's uh, in bad brain and in a million things. Awesome guy. You know, he's a fan of, of, uh, of, uh, one of your films that, you know, I think you, I think you watched Ramekin and, uh, you know, but I showed it to him and stuff and we, we've talked about this stuff before. And he knows Mumblecore up and down, has seen everything. It's like incredible. He's like gone into every little nook and cranny of this like scene. 
And when I was showing him your stuff, he's like, yeah, this like totally fits into like what the mumblecore thing would be. And I was sort of even telling him, yeah, but he, at the time, like he, he was like not a part of that. And I, you know, I certainly was, wasn't either. We were both sort of both in the same boat being outside, you know, kind of of this whole thing that was happening. And it's interesting to me to hear like, you know, that you were able to, that you've looked back on some of the stuff and noticed like that thing. I mean, I just, I do think that your work like fits, you know, I say that this is all a huge compliment. I mean, but I say it, I think it fits into that movement or would fit into it very well. And uh, it was, I remember even it being interesting to me when, when Swanberg had made that connection with you. Cause it was a few years ago when he, I think when he bought your book and stuff and you eventually talked to him um, just because I, again, I remember, I just remember back like your attitude of being so diametrically opposed to it. And then here it is like Swanberg is kind of like literally like maybe the guy of the whole, of the whole entire movement. Um, I mean, definitely on the Mount Rushmore of it. And, uh, you know, as you guys have become pals and stuff, I mean, that's, it's amazing. It's cool. But I, and I think that's cool what he said, uh, that, you know, he would feel the same way. I, you know, it's, it's, it's all interesting, but yeah, I, I think about that time a lot for sure. Yeah. Basically I went back and I watched a lot of his stuff, a lot of uh, other people's stuff. Not, not that I liked all of it, but I, I found myself really connecting to a lot of his films in particular and, and some other filmmakers as well. I really liked Aaron Katz's first couple films a lot. I liked uh, Frank V. Ross's films. So I found stuff that I connected with within that movement, if you want to call it that. Um, and especially like some of the Bujalski stuff. I really like that as well. Like the what people say is like the first Mumblecore movie, funny haha or whatever. In retrospect, I see the, the things that I'm doing, the things that they're doing in the crossover. I still think that like, what they were doing was was a little bit insular, and I think that was the thing that kind of threw people off in that, like, it felt like a company of players in a certain sense, because, like, Greta Gerwig's in a bunch of them, and certain people pop up. So it, it felt like almost in, like, the Cassavetes sense that it felt like a um, like a group that constantly comes back together and back together, and that can feel like you can't even penetrate it, like, because, like, well, where would I fit in? I'd just be, like, the new guy, you know? My theory is this, and I want to make very clear because I'm actually saying this like out loud on a thing now. I feel kind of weird, but my theory is this. I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've had like very brief correspondence with Joe. Obviously, you know, Joe, a little bit of my friend Kansas bowling is like is friends with Joe and, and like he's a, 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 he's awesome. I, a, like I'm, I'm being a little bit cautious here. I don't know any of these people personally at all. So this is like totally a guy who is me and that's like it's just this is my own little theory but i always felt like after 9-11 new york became the cool city in the country again seattle had been holding that throne and it seemed like it was just going to keep holding even after grunge had become corny and the scene was like dying by the year 2000 like seattle was still like the cool city and Austin sometimes would always like try to make a little, you know, gambit for it. Detroit, like pathetically always tried, but it never like worked really. Um, it's like way too like, it's just like way, just way too like depressed. But, um, but New York after once nine 11 happened, it's like, Oh, okay. This is like the going to be the cool, like we're going to go back to Brooklyn. This is like where it's going to ha- like, there was a thing in the air of that. And then I think you have happen. 
is and this is where I'm like really hesitant to say it because I don't want to sound like a jerk and I also like it's I don't know these people personally so I'm trying to like be clear about this but like in any movement it's like mostly like rich kids right like it's rich kids that can afford to like go live in Williamsburg and gentrify it and like get all this gear and do all this stuff like it it's there's a air of that and mumblecore again it's like i'm not pointing a finger at like any specific person but it's sort of like you combine those things and i think when you start talking about like a clickiness or just like there being gates up or like it feeling like these are kind of the cool theater kids in a way like i think there is a little bit of like you i I know that i I don't know if you've come around i know you don't like like lena dunham's work or something but like one thing i was almost always almost kind of like i like her i'm a fan of her i like girls and i like tiny furniture one thing that i was always like kind of raise an eyebrow or was a little bit like hey dude what what like why are you doing this like about girls was that lena dunham the real person is like a rich girl from manhattan that has like artist parents and so, of course, she was, like, able to do all this stuff. But the character in Girls is from Michigan, like, specifically almost, like, where I'm from. And the whole thing is that she's very, like, entitled about, like, oh, I my parents, like, pay for me to, like, live in Brooklyn. And I'm trying to be, like, a writer and all this stuff. And it felt like this girl from Manhattan that was, like, already rich and had, like, connected parents – was like criticizing people like me that were like literally coming from the place in her show and like trying to kind of make it as an artist, like out there and struggling and stuff. And again, I'm not, I, you know, it, my point in saying all this is like, it, it, yes, it, it felt like there, it, it like, in, like I'm sure there isn't any artistic movement throughout history. It's sort of like, it looks like it's coming from the streets because everything is handheld and everything is like digital and everything is these young people and they're probably poor in their little tiny Brooklyn apartments and stuff. But it's also like half of those people are, yeah, they're like rich kids that can like afford to like slum it because they're, they have a truck. Like it's that kind of situation. And I think like a lot of those people, it's like, of course they're going to sort of climb show business in a way that the rest of us aren't because they're already kind of connected. And this is just them in kind of like boot camp or something. But I, I don't know. I, 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 you know, as I hear myself say all that stuff, I don't, I don't even know how it sounds and it's kind of like dumb, but I don't know. No, I think you're picking up on something that's real, which is, um, there's a documentary I watched recently, which was pretty good. It could have been way more comprehensive, but I liked it, which is called meet me in the bathroom, which is a kind of about like the strokes and the moldy peaches and, and that kind of like burgeoning, um, Brooklyn, uh, music scene after mm. 2001. And it, it, it doesn't address these things like head on, but like everything you're talking about is pretty much true, which is it gets into the criticisms of the strokes at the time, which is these are all kind of rich kids and these are all, all are kids that would have been fine without uh, being in the band, the strokes uh, just because of their lineage and their parents and stuff. And that's the same thing with every, every person who was on girls. Like the, these girls would be fine. If you're, if you're Brian Williams daughter, you're going to be fine. You know, these kind of things where like when we make art, when you or I make art and, and you're sleeping in a living room for years, cranking out stuff on YouTube for like your friend and stuff. Or like if I'm rubbing two sticks together to make a movie, if I'm making a movie for $0 or 500 bucks or whatever, you know, there's there's always the 
the tightrope aspect of it where like we could fall and there's no net. And for a lot of people, there is a net. Uh, and I, I feel like at the time I, if I felt like somebody had a net, I, I kind of just wanted to be away from them because it just didn't, it didn't feel right. It felt like, um, something was fishy, you know, it, it, I always equated to, you know, true Brooklynites versus transplants, but there's a lot of people that came to Brooklyn that are totally cool, much like yourself. I think it's more like just a, a you're allowed to have, you're allowed to have your own, uh, Brooklyn cred. I, I accept that. I'll always be a Midwest, uh, kid, but I, yes, I accept that. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think there's a difference between a transplant who, can fuck up as much as they want and nothing will ever happen to them and a right. transplant who could end up, you know, right back home if they if they don't get their shit together or something. Of course. Yeah, so I think that's probably what I was picking up on whether I could have explained it at the time but like I just if I if I feel like somebody is going to be all right like if I'm playing with like real uh ammo and they're playing with like fucking nerf ammo and they're acting like we're both playing like with the same shit. Like, I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> dude, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I want to make clear too. Like I have, there's nothing inherent. Like, uh, uh, first of all, a kid, and we're talking about ki- a kid is a kid, right? I mean, a kid is not, a kid didn't have to be born. A kid didn't, you know, it's not their like fault or anything. And beyond that there, it's undeniable that there's tons of really talented artists that, came from these places and, and i mean if, uh, first of all it's like of course because if you if you grow up around these people then you're it's nature nurture like it's very obvious that that's also going to happen and i think we as we certainly like to you know the, the, that whole like nepo baby thing came out like a few months ago i mean we we certainly love to celebrate when uh you know the the, the son or daughter or whoever of a um rich person is like trying to be in show business and they suck and they're not funny or they're not good. Like we all, we always celebrate that failure. And I, I totally understand it. I, I, I get it. I'll be the first to say, by the way, uh, funny pages, which, which Owen Klein made. Th- that's probably the best movie I saw last year. And that, that couldn't be more Nepo baby, but I think talent kind of seeps through. I like the strokes. I like their early stuff a lot. Um, sure. You know, I, yeah. I think, Rich kids can make good stuff. I think that was my review when I uh, when I uh, uh, watched Funny Pages and I did it on Letterboxd. I was like, you know, sometimes spoiled rich kids make really good art. It happens. And no, of course, you know? I think that I think the, the the deeper thing is that you know when I was younger, and and I think you touched on this too. But you know, and when I was younger, I didn't think of any of this stuff i i also in a very naive way for me personally i just thought everything was based purely on like artistic merit and like you know your talent and all that kind of stuff what you're bringing in that way so i did the only thing i knew how to do in response to thinking that was to just keep practicing constantly and trying to push myself to be the best you know like filmmaker writer all that stuff that i could possibly be but you know i will say that doing that alone in a vacuum, it's not the easy, it's, I mean, it's not the easy. It's really hard. It's really, really hard to do. And when you're having to do that and then also getting, like you mentioned, you know, like most of the time that we were making Hacked Knife, like, um, you know, I was living in a living room. Like I currently live in a garage. Like it's not, and I'm very, very extremely, extremely grateful to have that situation. So it's not, you know, but, but the point in saying that is that like, 
it's it. I've met, there's so many people that I've met out here or anywhere and it's not their fault at all. And they, and they are extremely talented and they're, and I'm not, I'm literally not pointing a single finger at like any one person because it's just sort of like the general experience of meeting all these different, different kinds of people as I get older is if you're, if you have never been in a situation where you're like living in a living room or whatever like that, uh, it's, it's like impossible to sort of relate to it or like understand what it is and understand like the barriers that you feel like you have. Like when you're just trying to survive and get through, you know, the next couple months and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's like, that's what when that's what your life is then it's like so much harder to like try to like make a good movie and all that kind of stuff and like i know for me personally i've sort of um i've always sort of like designed a life that kept me in poverty because ironically so being being in poverty was like the only way that i would be able to have like the free time and the freedom to like go make films like i guess this is like a weird thing to say i guess but it's like if you think about it like between bad brain and psycho ape 2 like as of as we're talking right now that's brought in like over twenty thousand dollars of like cash you know to like make those films right well like twenty thousand dollars would like change my life (laughs) like i'm in all this like personal debt and Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, that's like, it would do all these big things, but I live a life where I would rather only have like a couple hundred dollars to myself at the end of the month to like get groceries and then take that $20,000 and like spend it on making films like that. That's sort of the constant like negotiation that you're like making with yourself. And there's just, there is literally no chance that someone that has a giant trust fund or whatever they have they, it's not possible for them to ever relate to any of that stuff. And the, and the unfortunate thing that I've sort of learned is that like that life experience and all that stuff, like, yeah, it, it could add character to, to, to you as a person. It could add, you know, it could add in like, it could give you adversity that could help you a lot, like as a person, but it doesn't necessarily make you any more, you know, talented or anything than like the next person. Like there's always going to be like a rich, handsome kid that can like throw the ball like farther than you. Like that's just, it's just sort of always going to be a thing. And you have to, I think that what I've learned as I got older is that you just basically have to remember that it's like, it's your own self-expression. Like that's what it is. It's not about, there is no real competition and like, you know, as long as you try to interface the world, like honestly, then like you should get, you know, you should get something good out of it and try to just try to make stuff like the, the, all the noise of like, Oh, the, the rich kid doesn't have no idea how easy it is. And they're, they're trying to do it. It's like, yeah. And they've, they're, they're also making great films. I mean, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, like, Buffalo 66 is like the best movie ever made. And it's like, he, that's a total, like he's a super rich kid. Like that's Vincent Gallo. Like he's the epitome of that, but it's like, he's, it's, he's insanely talented and he seems to be a genuine weirdo and a genuine, interesting artist and person. Like it, it, it doesn't take away anything. Like that's the thing. And if, if you have the mindset that you're like competing with that, it's like, how could you ever win? Like, not only did he make the best movie ever made, but he's also like always going to have more money. So like, what are you supposed to do? Like there, there is nothing that you can do. So I don't know. 
Yeah, I think uh, if if you're playing against yourself, you're playing the game properly. If you're playing against other people, like you're going to be the worst golfer on the course because it, it, we're playing a game against ourselves. Ultimately, that's what art is. You know, the only competition is like, can I be more myself next time? You know, can I can I be truer to my vision and and what am I doing and do I like it? And if other people respond to it, great, you know, whatever. But like, ultimately, you're just trying to um, be the best you that you can be, whether you have a million dollars or you have a dollar, like you just want to be the best artist that you can be with what you have for sure. All right, Greg, uh, if you've heard the show before, uh, which I, I don't even know if you have, have you even heard this show before? I've heard the show. I, I, I mean, I certainly listened to this one, but I haven't listened to the one with uh, Addison yet, but hi, Addison. All right. So if you have heard the show before, you know that we do stupid questions here. We also have another uh, segment, which I just introduced recently, which is where I prescribe a movie for somebody. I, I be video store guy. You know, that's that's. Oh, nice. OK. So what are you in the mood for right now? Before we get to stupid questions, what, what would you want to watch right now? And I'll try and think of a movie you haven't seen that kind of fits that. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh... Are you in the mood for something funny? Are you in the mood for something touching? What are you in the mood for? Um touching touching okay uh tragedy no no not 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 a tragedy like a touching uh a touching comedy though not like a not like a crazy comedy you know like a touching one okay i might hit some that you've seen already just because you've seen everything and i've seen everything yes have you seen things change no you never saw that the david mamet no oh my god you would actually really like that movie i would have pegged that as one that you've seen and liked so wait, did they, are you saying that David Mamet made a tame, touching comedy that's not like insane, like swearing and nuts stuff? I mean, I love him, but I'm just—is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. He made it. He wrote it with uh, Shel Silverstein, and he directed it. Really, Shel Silverstein? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's um, Joe Mantegna and Don Amici are these two. Uh, well, Joe Mantegna is a gangster, and uh, Don Amici looks like. Uh, a gangster he's like the splitting image of this gangster and it's about uh joe Mantegna and the splitting image of a gangster basically going to vegas and doing stuff together um it's fantastic it's so up your alley it's so touching and so sweet and and so funny it's i i think you'll really like it yeah i gotta watch that that sounds awesome yeah it's uh, i think it was made in the late 80s um and things change if you're listening at home you want to watch along with greg is that before or after House of Games, then? I believe it's after, yeah. Wow, weird. Okay, well, yeah, man, that's cool. Yeah, I think it was his second film, so right after House of Games. Wow, okay, great. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, and now stupid questions. Uh, these are these are some stupid questions I have for you. Are you ready to be asked some stupid questions? Yes. All right, first stupid question. Do you ever wish your name was Craig and not Greg, or do you like Greg? Fuck no. I, can I swear? <laughs> Please do. Uh, dude, no. I, I mean, I already hate my name because it sucks. Because uh, growing up in the era that we did, it's like every like corny asshole villain in the 80s movies was like, named Greg. And it's just like a t- it just doesn't even sound pleasing. Like It's just like a bad-sounding word. But Craig is like way worse because it's like... 
Craig is some, they somehow found a way to take the sound of my name and make it like weaker, which is like, ugh. I apologize to all Craig's out there, but yeah, I can't, I, there's, I would never want to change it, but I do sometimes consider, uh, you ever see where they spell Greg with two G's for no reason? Like, I kind of like, like that. I kind I kind of like wish that that's how my name was written, but it's not. So you could use another G you could use another thousand dollars. I could. All right. Next stupid question. How do you feel about the fact that Tarantino totally stole your Jaws as the first movie thing? Uh, wait, did he? Yeah, he. I think I sent you this. He's been in his book and on his podcast. He's he's basically said that like Jaws is the first movie. Basically, I guess that is true. I read the book. I, I guess you're right. I did kind of pick up on that. Uh, yeah, that was your fucking thing for so long, and you got so much shit for it on the internet. Yeah, you know, I got it's, and now he runs with it, and everybody loves it. It's funny that you say that because I, I will say that I have not looked at any of the articles that I've that I wrote for smug fell in and got now it's like 10 years ago and i'm like i'm terrified of them I, I i assume i would completely like cringe and stuff and i i hope that i've evolved quite a bit from my thinking from you know that when i was that age and stuff but i do think back on that particular essay a lot i believe it was called the idea of what a movie is and it, i always thought it, first of all i, I want to say i always thought it was like interesting uh, kind of cool in a way uh that h bomber guy uh, Harry Brewis said, and I think I used this quote where he was basically like, cause he, he's a big fan of uh, hacking knife. And he was, he said something to the effect of like, I can't believe someone like that has such like shitty opinions about movies, like made such a great one. And I, you know, look, I, I, I think back on that. I think back on that podcast that I did with John D'Amico back in the day. I don't think I, I probably don't know if how much I agree with myself from that period necessarily, but I, it is interesting. Yes. That Tarantino seems to have like adopted that idea if that's the case. And I would, my, my initial reaction to it would be that like most things in that way, I am either way ahead of the time or way behind the time. And I'm never quite dialed rightly because yeah i remember getting a bunch of like hate for that and just basically just being kind of like confused by it and and i will say like i haven't talked to john D'Amico since then you know i wish him well i don't know him personally i don't know if he ever like became a filmmaker or anything but i mean I, you know i don't i don't know i don't know what his what he does now or what his like deal is i i, I almost feel like in that quote unquote debate that we had uh, in the on the podcast I probably basically agree with him now more than me at the time, but I sort of found his him to just be like humorless and pretentious where I was kind of just trying to be like, I don't know. I just like, like movies. Um, I don't know that, that question was actually not stupid. It actually opened up like all the whole thing just cause I don't know. I, I think, I guess you're right. I, I do remember reading that, that him saying that in the, in cinema speculation, but it didn't quite set off the, thing in my head that was like oh yeah i said that i guess i did say you don't know i always thought maybe i said said rocky instead of jaws. i don't know but that's an interesting no you said you said jaws that's interesting well i don't know I think great minds i guess right i don't know maybe, maybe he was secretly reading smug film the whole time who knows honestly he's so familiar with like small movie publications and random uh little small distributors and stuff like that i would not be surprised if uh he he saw that piece at some point maybe 10 years ago and it just rattled around in his head and came back when he was writing his book not plagiarism of course but just uh you know good ideas kind of stick in your head a little bit 
I think you were onto something. Well, shout out to myself because and it's not technically his podcast, but the Pure Cinema podcast did play a trailer that I edited uh, recently. So yes, there's a maybe 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 he's secretly like, hey, we got to everything that this guy Greg does, we gotta we gotta get this out there somehow. Dude, it's it's a smaller world than you will ever realize. I've had situations where like. I by chance talked to like a filmmaker that I like and they were like, oh yeah, I loved Ramekin. And it's just, it's because you don't necessarily hear from everybody once they see something, you know? Right. If you think about in your own life, I don't go emailing every single director that I watch a movie that I like of and why should we expect anything else? So, you know, I, I, you never know who is familiar with your shit basically in this world. Yeah. Yeah, man. All right. Next question. Did you know that if you dated Kathy Griffin in the mid-2000s and she liked being on top of you when you had sex, the name of her reality show back then would have been My Life on the Deliso? Uh, I... Instead of My Life on the D-List. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh... That story, that joke makes me think of Fred Stoller, who is a comedian that, like, nobody knows and he was like on a Seinfeld episode as himself. Uh, and he is on the North. He did an episode of Norm McDonald's podcast, like the one from 10 years ago on YouTube. And he tries to tell this story about having sex with Kathy Griffin. But like it, he's just like, he's like insane. Like he can't like tell the story. And the whole time Norm is just kind of like trolling him because he's so like, just can't like say anything it's no that so yes that's my that's my reaction to that is that it makes me think of fred stoller being trolled by norm on the old podcast it's a great clip hopefully people will listen to it yeah all right last stupid question actually two-parter i'm gonna borrow the last questions you used to ask whenever you would interview anybody which is first question (laughs) what's your favorite movie field of dreams baby and uh what's your least favorite movie uh the dark knight I really don't like The Dark Knight either. I got to say, some people know this about me, but not enough do. Well, here's here are words that you definitely never would have expected to hear me say ever. I'm excited to see Oppenheimer, basically just because I think that when uh, Nolan is confined to like some form of reality and, and historical stuff, I don't mind the st- his style as much anymore, and I just happen to be deeply interested in that story and the Manhattan Project and the nuclear bomb, all that stuff is just really interesting to me. So I don't really care how like boring it is. Like is. I'm probably just going to like it because it's going to be cool, and I'm excited for it. I also want to go on record as saying that I think Christopher Nolan is like super talented. I, I don't know anything about him personally. I wish him well. I, I, think he, I do think he's like a true a tour and like, uh, like awesome and stuff. Uh, I just personally don't really seem to like many of his movies. I, I break it down a lot of it to just like stylistic stuff. He kind of has like very rounded edges and I tend to like things that are much more angular. Um, so he just kind of wears on me and I just find it kind of boring and like grating. But uh, that's okay. You know, 10 years ago, the younger me would have been like way more like spiky about all that stuff and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. I, I don't I really don't like The Dark Knight. I mean, I, I don't like any of those three Batman movies, really. I, the Dark Knight, I think, is the best of the three, like almost by far. It's the only one that I do think is like watchable, basically. 
I will say that Psychoape 2 is going to open with a parody of the opening of The Dark Knight, and that's exciting. <laughs> but uh, no, I, yeah, I've, I've softened a lot. But yeah, no, I, I, but I am in a way I'm not in a certain way. I'm not joking. I really don't like the dark Knight, And I, I, that movie really sort of like when it came out and everybody was obsessed with it, I was, I felt kind of like crushed in a way. Yeah. When, uh, I remember hearing that like heat was like a really big influence on the dark Knight, And I was like, yeah, and I don't like that one either. So <laughs> I, I don't like either of those. And that perfectly lines up for me. All right, Greg, it was great talking to you. I hope you watch things change. And uh, I can't wait to see Bad Brain and Psycho Ape 2. Yeah, man. Love you, man. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Love you, too. Talk to you soon. Yep. Later. Thank you all for listening. And if you like the show, contribute $2 per month. Killthelinefilms.com. That's all we ask. $2. It keeps the show afloat. It keeps the studio afloat. We want to make more movies, more podcasts for you. Thank you all for listening. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>